Fire. All right, here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the ASJ Open Forum podcast. Today, we're extremely honored to have Dr. Grant Stevens with us today. Grant, thank you so much for being here. Uh, he hey, needs no introduction, but for those who don't know much about Dr. Stevens, he is a clinical professor of surgery at University of Southern California. He is the founder and director of the Marina Rocks USC Aesthetic Fellowship endorsed by the Aesthetic Society. He's also a past president, current trustee of the Aesthetic Society, and it goes on and on and on. But those alone tell you uh, what he has done for education and training in this uh, realm. And I'm so excited to have you. Grant, we're here to talk about your recent article discussing your experience with mastectomy. And it was excellent. I mean, it was over 15 years of surgery that you looked at, you analyzed efficiency, complications, patient types, techniques. And so really, I want to dive right into the whole meat of the article, which is how you discuss how mastectomy in particular helps guide efficiency in your OR. I know you have some pearls for our audience. So talk to us kind of about your philosophy. When we get in the OR with Dr. Stevens with this mastectomy, tell us about that. Tell us about that process. Well, well, thank you very much for this opportunity, first of all, Chris, and, and welcome to all of you that are uh, watching and or listening today. Uh, it's a great opportunity to have to speak to you, and I'm honored and privileged to do that. I'm sitting here in Sun Valley, Idaho, uh, in the snow and having a great time. So, you know, it happens way before the mastectomy, as Dr. Weeks used to say, prior preparation precludes poor performance, the five Ps. And I don't walk into the OR and just willy-nilly decide, I'm going to do some mastectomy. The other thing, a couple other points. Um, the, the real work, the real work is happens before. And that includes the examination and the assessment and the plan. And I believe facelifts break down more than any operation in, in this way, in that we assess and we plan, and then we mark, and then we anesthetize. And there's a whole, there's an art form with that. And then the incisions then the flaps, then how we handle the deep structures, how we handle the neck, and finally the closure. And you might want to throw in the dressing, but those are steps that are not willy-nilly. They're planned. They, they, they involve a plan. And when people say, oh my goodness, because I, I have the residents and fellows with me all the time, and I've done this now for 35 years and right there in the marina. So needless to say, I've done thousands of these, but I hate the four letter word that starts with an F and I don't allow it in my operating room and my residents know that I've actually thrown them out for saying it to, to come back. And that four letter F word is fast. <laughs> and they say, you're so fast. And I say, you know, fast implies sloppy. And I'm not fast. I'm actually watch my hands. They move very slowly, but I'm efficient. And that efficiency comes from the anatomy and a plan and an understanding of the anatomy, which is key. And you as an anatomist, I'm sure can relate to this. And there are different levels of knowledge of the anatomy. Uh, it's not just naming a structure, but rather the variations and the dynamics of it and the functional anatomy and so forth. And once one gets comfortable with that, one can start making changes. And you asked me about mastectomy in, uh, in particular. I don't think that's an operation for all seasons because you're taking tissue out, ectomy removal, right? So SMAS plication and doing other things with the SMAS can really help the thin face along with adding fat and so forth. However, a lateral SMASectomy, which I learned from Dan Baker, and I give Dan Baker all the credit 
Everything I learned about lateral spastectomy came from Dan Baker and, and the twin studies that the Aesthetic Society endorsed. And if, if the listeners and watchers haven't seen the twin studies, it's incumbent upon them to go and research the twin studies. And I was fortunate enough to watch these twin studies and see, and I was so impressed by the longevity and the success and the beauty of Dan Baker's lateral mastectomies, so much so that I read everything he wrote and then went and watched. And uh, Dan has, has taught so many. And it, it is, anyways, it's beyond the scope of this brief talk we're doing, but the lateral mastectomy gives you such power to lift the, the mid face and the nasolabial fold. And it's so close to where we're really lifting through and it goes down the neck and over the mandible and down in front of the sternocleidomastoid and involves asectomy. And it's great for the fat face. It's great for the male face. I can think of no better approach to a male face, except I mean, again, I don't do one operation. Sometimes I'll raise this mass and we're gonna talk about modified deep uh, deep plane, but there are times where I will couple a smastectomy with other treatments of the SMAS. It's not one or the other. One right. can alter the vectors of the SMAS and still do a smastectomy. Yeah. Right. I agree. I agree. So, uh, but you ask about efficiencies. If you're just going to get in and all you need is a vector that's parallel to the nasolabial fold perpendicular to the jaw, or in other words, a vector that's perpendicular to the nasolabial fold, and you're lifting like this, and that's what you need, and that's what the patient needs, and you can tend to the neck with whatever way you're going to tend to the neck, which to me is a separate structure. They're contiguous, but that's all you need. It's minimal undermining. You get to the SMAS, free it up uh, from the avicularis. You're actually cutting a little piece of the avicularis off, and this level it goes from the avicularis down towards the angle of the jaw, changes the vector, and goes down parallel to the sternocleidomastoid, and you're cutting SMAS right out. You can do a dissection and do it. The first 10, I would do that way. I don't do them that way. I just pick it up and I, I cut it out. After I decide how many centimeters, and it's usually one to three centimeters minimum. And yeah. then I do uh, tacky stitches, and then a permanent suture. No, that's perfect. Now, you brought up an interesting point because this is kind of a hot topic right now. We're seeing all over social media and in the literature, deep plane. And yeah. you and I both know deep plane is not a new concept. And oftentimes you could ask 10 different surgeons and get 10 different answers on deep plane, but yet everyone's hashtagging it. Everyone's talking about it on social media. So talk to me about your thoughts on deep plane. What do you, what is your thought about a deep plane face of a, <laughs> of a modified deep plane? Let's, let's see if we can get some you know, clarity here. You know, it cracks me up. It's the old thing. If you don't know history, if you can't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. Right. <laughs> uh, there's nothing new about a deep plane. Let's start with that. Sam Hamra and others, uh, wrote all about it. And I guess the ultimate deep plane would be the subperiosteal. The key thing about a deep plane is the skin's still attached to the SMAS, but you, so we all get under the SMAS and we can talk about that all day long. We could talk about it literally all day long, right? Um, all this attention to the deep plane is uh, actually, frankly, a lot of marketing. Uh, we've been doing it, when I was a resident, we were doing it, okay? So, uh, but, but it has changed. That modification business uh, is true because instead of doing everything, even Sam Hammer took back his papers. What he wrote originally in those beautiful dissections that he published in the other journal, the lesser journal, uh, he since took back almost all of that because he realizes the downside and the risk and so forth was excessive. However, there's some really interesting concepts about keeping the SMAS attached to the skin. 
And right. we all know about that from vascularity to healthiness of the skin and all the redraping and so forth. And we can talk about that. Uh, uh, Tom Musto wrote a beautiful article, again, in the Lester Journal, uh, but about a modified uh, deep plane, mainly the neck, the posterior neck and so forth, and keeping the platysma and the smas together attached to the skin. And I, I thought that was a beautiful article that Tom wrote. And uh, certainly we use modified deep plane at time. But again, if we have a person who is, well, there are times where we'll do a full deep plane, but I, I generally don't like it because of the downsides, the recovery, the time, the morbidity. And the fact is they don't look any better. But and, and over time, the twin studies proved it. Interesting. Now you mentioned the neck as a separate structure. And I think that's actually really important. You know, we, we often go to these meetings and we see this, this question to open or not open the neck. So you know, to kind of complete off your algorithm there, how, when you're approaching the neck, what is, what's your thought process and how you decide what to do, if anything, with the neck? Okay, I break it down on the exam. Is it an obtuse or acute angle? Is there extra skin, extra fat, or extra muscle, or a problem with the muscle, or all the above, or what combination of the above? And they don't all come, not all necks are the same. Sometimes it's just skin and it's wispy skin. So, um, and again, a male is different than a female in all this. Right. Uh, sometimes it's just big waddle of fat and a simple submental uh, or even from posterior uh, a lipectomy with suction lipectomy and evacuating this area can sometimes make a beautiful change. Usually there's some redundant skin, right. but the hypotenuse, hypotenuse is shorter than the sum of the two sides of the, of the triangle. And yeah. so you don't have as much extra skin as you think you do when it's simply full of of, uh, of fat because of the Pythagorean theorem. So having said that, uh, I break it down. I almost always want to lift the neck structure some way or another and attend to the platysma, but uh, you have to individualize it for sure. If you had to gauge the percentage of times you'd make a submental incision combined with the facelift, how often would you say you do that? I'm, I'm a, a frequent submental incision person. Uh, as you know, it's one, either the most common or second most common uh, pediatric laceration. Uh, you know, I think a third of my patients have a little scar there anyways. But I, I and I always say when people ask me about it, the only person that will ever see the scar, if there is a scar, are midgets and children. And I always say, don't worry about it. It's, <laughs> I, I've never done a scar revision on some mental incision. And, and I use a UVAC, UVAC, it's a uterine vacuum device. Uh, turn downward to evacuate the fat over the platysma. I leave a healthy amount of flat, fat on the flap. And this is even if I'm going to do a modified uh, a deep plane from posterior, because I don't like the fat underneath the mentum and the chin area. No, and it also gives sense. me a, a great shot at the platysma. Yeah. But as Tom and others have said, you don't always have to placate or divide the platysma. You don't have to always do that. But I generally will divide it. Uh, I, if I need to placate, I will, I'd say it's maybe 50, 50. I hear you. Yeah. I open the neck very often too. Now let's talk about, I, I remember the incision discussion, not only in your article, but I've seen you present some great, uh, presentation on this. Talk to us about your incision algorithm, particularly also how you treat the occipital incision and what your role is there. I know you have some good pearls for us on that. Well, obviously what people see of our work, is not just the beautiful face you've created, but thankfully, they see no telltale signs of what your access site was, which is your incision, right? So I really am adamant about designing incisions, which give us the best shot at hiding them. So what do we have to work with? Well, we've got a head of hair. 
we've got a tragus, we've got a lobule, and we've got a posterior ear that only your mother ever looked behind, <laughs> generally speaking. So how can we design an ideal incision? First of all, it depends on the person, male versus female. I'm going to take female because 85% of my patients approximately are female. I was taught to run the incision well up into the, into the uh, temple. I learned very quickly in practice that when you did that too much, if you got a good vertical lift, you were messing with the sideburn. So I, I tend to uh, uh, respect the height of the sideburn and I'll come with a, either a Burroughs triangle, something so I don't elevate the sideburn. That doesn't mean I don't go into the temple. But having said that, I'm a retrotragal guy for the most part. If I have a revision where I've lost the tragus or I have a very, very ill-defined tragus, there are times... I won't do that. Or if I have really thick skin and I know I'm going to get that globular, funky looking tragus, I won't do it. But in general, I am a retrotragal guy. I come around the lobule and here's a key. I don't make my incision in the sulcus. I make it on the posterior ear, on the concha, at Great least pearl. a centimeter out of the sulcus. And that is because in my first five years, I noticed that my incisions, which started in the sulcus, migrated a centimeter out and yeah. I'd see this white line and I'm like, I didn't put that there. Well, obviously descent and gravity and age. So I put it on the, on the concha. Okay. And then I come up high and with all due respect to Tim Martin and all the people that have it wrong, I go across and into the hair. I do not do the hairline. I hate the hairline incision. I've seen too many. I've revised too many. And when I hear people say, if you go into the hair, you always have a step off. I say to them, show me one to mine, show me one step up. And I've said that from the podium in, in uh, Sweden uh, at Pierre Hedan's meeting with Tim and others. And I've challenged Tim to show me one. And uh, I'm crazy about hairlines. Uh, most of my patients historically came from hairdressers. And I was best man of a hairdresser in St. Louis where I was in training. And he kept complaining that all facelifts look bad and all scars are visible and all hair is terrible. And I learned from hairdressers that you really have to respect that hairline. So I advanced the, it's all about the closure. If you go into the hairline, then you advance from distal to proximal. And I set a stitch right there at the hairline. I do not change that hairline one micron to the best of my visual acuity. And then I start posture and work towards the, the apex of that incision up there high on the, on the ear. And I would say to you, you can do that. You don't kill the follicles. And you close with hair sparing skin clips. <laughs> that's very good. Well, I think that's, that is interesting. I think that, you know, the occipital incision and I've, I've seen you, I've seen that technique and utilizing, I love that terminology, not staples, but uh, skins, uh, skin and hair, or hair, hair sparing skin clips. That's perfect. Correct. And, and I think for the younger surgeons, and, and I did a fellowship with uh, aesthetic fellowship with Jim Zins, and I do do a lot of facial surgery in my practice, actually my number one operation, um, but I'm still in my first third, if you will, of my three thirds of practice. And I will tell you that conchal incision is really important. I've, I've, I do put them up like on the conchal bowl, just like you do. And then you see it contract in. And I do think you can tell a lot about a facial surgeon by looking at their incisions. You know, when you look at revisions and you look at where scar placement is, I think it's really important. So those are really good pearls. I, I love that, Grant. I have a question for you, okay? I like spastectomy as well. Um, I was trained in deep plane technique and, and extended SMAS. Uh, revisions, you know, so we looked at your data and your article, and I think you did about 
33% of those patients were revision patients. Now, when I think of revision, that's when I tend to get a little bit concerned. You know, is the nerve anatomy altered? If I don't have the op report from the previous facelift, what am I dealing with anatomy wise? And so I tend to lean towards doing plications as opposed to smash flaps, depending on the patient, depending on what I see when I get in there with scar. Talk to me about how you usually treat a revision and will you do a smastectomy on a scar, uh, on a revision that has pre-existing scar? Tell me about that. So, okay, happy to. It's a great subject, revisions, because first we start with what's the definition of a revision? Because for instance, there's secondaries that, that you did the primary on and you read your op note and that's one, that's the, probably the easiest, right? There's secondaries that are just, they're 10 years old and they come to see you and they saw your neighbor before and, and you read the op note and you have a little skepticism of what actually happened because you actually never know what really happened. And then there's true revisions where they may be in the first one to five years and something's screwed up. You know, they don't revision like a reconstructive revision, even aesthetic. So when people ask me about revisions, I always say, could you define what you mean? Because <laughs> there, there are at least three different types and they're actually way more than that. But taking the middle of the road revision, well, if it's my revision and I know what I did, uh, I will make my plan accordingly. And that's my most common revision is because I'm a dinosaur. They're coming in to see me and they come to see me. It's, it's like clockwork. It's like 10 to 12 years. Um, it, it cracks me up. It's like there's an alarm clock out there or something. And I've had the good fortune in the last year to, to do a boatload of revisions because I'm winding up my practice and the word went out to my patients. So they're all scurrying in and I'm having a blast going back and looking and learning about my lateral smastectomies and what I did. And most of my revisions, I don't retouch the smas. It's generally still really tight. It's really cool. I do sometimes raise the smas and because I've lost some vertical height and sometimes I'll make an incision in the smas and, and actually raise a smas flap, even though I had a lateral smastectomy before and my mid face is up. Oftentimes in my revision, I'm adding fat. A lot of these people have lost facial fat. And so my revisions are older typically and they're, uh, they're gaunt or they need some volume. Um, uh, now, the revisions that are most challenging are the reconstructive ones where you're fixing something and or those that you really don't know what happened. Right. And it's kind of, it's, <laughs> it, it's uh, interesting uh, Easter egg hunt. You go out there, you don't know what you're going to find. Yeah. And, uh, and, and sometimes you find different things on one side than the other. I'm sure you've seen that. And you're like, what? Yeah. You assume that what you found on the right, you're going to find on the left. And you're like, did two different doctors do this? <laughs> it can range from incisions all the way to how they handled this mess. Right. So and those are the challenging ones, but I dig them actually, to tell you the truth. And I, but less is more, Right. less is more there because you can, you can, you can hurt people and you have to be very circumspect there. Well, I, I have, yeah, I have two follow-up questions. The first thing is I think you and I touched on this when we were visiting earlier before we did the podcast um, about the bold surgeon and how when you're young, you're feeling invincible and you feel like you can do all these things. And I think you said, you know, then all of a sudden complications start batting you in the head and saying, hey, hang on a second, have some humility. So talk to me a little bit about your progression um, through your career as far as how aggressive you were and how you treat surgery now versus 15, 20 years ago. Well, Dr. Weeks, who's my mentor, my chairman at Barnes Wash U, used to say surgeons have the first 10, the middle 10, and the last 10 years. They spend too much time the first 10, 
perfect time the second 10 and too little time the third 10. I'm clearly at the end of the third 10, but this is what I, uh, you know, I've doing this fellowship now. This is my 22nd year. I've had the opportunity to train guys like you for 22 years. And uh, I, as I said, they're old surgeons and bold surgeons, but they're no old, bold surgeons. Um, in the first 10, we all tend to be a little bolder than probably we should. Uh, the surgical gods know this. And the surgical gods will beat you over the head and you'll have sleepless night after sleepless night when you're monitoring one flap or a neuropraxia or whatever. And you're going to you'll become more humble in your second 10. I predict it um, and so forth. And also, you know, uh, Babe Ruth may be the home run champion until you know recently. He was for many, many years, but he remains the strikeout champion. So my advice to the young people I'm listening and the fellows and residents and in your first five years, at least, if you haven't done 100 facelifts or more, my advice to you is don't swing for the fences. Don't swing for a grand slam. This is not this is not in any way to say to accept mediocrity. It's to accept the fact that you just don't have enough mileage and you may get lucky and get a home run every now and then. I hope you do. And you may even get a grand slam. But if you're swinging for a grand slam or a home run every single time in your first 100, you're going to get into trouble. You just can't possibly know all the different nuances. Uh, and, and none of us do. That's why we call it the practice of medicine. I don't know everything, but I've learned a lot in the last 35 to 38 years uh, about ways in which I can strike out. And we're not just playing baseball here. These are people's, not only their bodies, but this is their faces. And we right. say about as plain as the nose on your face, this is not kid stuff. We're not, not to take anything away from body surgery at all, because you know I love body surgery. But from here up, that's us. That's our image for the world. And we knock off a nerve or slough a flap or create asymmetry or unnatural lines or unnatural vectors and all the various things that we all see. That, that affects that person's life every single day probably every hour of every day, unless they're sleeping. And that is our responsibility to first do no harm. So my advice to these young people, take it easy, learn the anatomy, be conservative and don't get too full of yourself. And all this talk now, it's like everybody thinks that this, all this stuff is new. It cracks me up. My residents and fellows and the young doctors I'm working with are actually talking to me like somehow this wasn't around <laughs> 10, 20, even 30 years ago. And Guys, go back and look at the old journal articles. It was around. Well, that's good advice. I had a mentor tell me once that the key is to get a lot of base hits and the home runs will come. He used the same analogy, and I love that. And that's actually when the residents rotate with us and, and when, when I have the opportunity to, to speak at the residency program and kind of talk about um, what I've learned so far and what I continue to learn in practice, I, I think that's really important. You know, good, good, good base hits and the home runs will come. That's really, really awesome. Um, two other topics before we, we finish off here. The first one is, you know, I think I'm now starting to see some of my early results where you get some recurrence of skin laxity and or you get questions about longevity. And so I even notice now the face of consult that I deliver this year is different than the one I delivered last year and the year before. And it's a lot more about trying to deliver re realistic expectations. And the one question I always get pinned on is how long is this going to last me? And I think that that's a difficult question to answer as a surgeon. So I, I want to hear in the consult, when you get that question, what do you tell those patients and what do you prepare them for? Because remember, recurrence is going to be in the eye of the beholder, right? A little bit of skin recurrence yes. on one person may not bother them. On another person, it might be extremely troublesome. So talk to me about how you approach that in the consult. Yeah. And then how you deal with the unmet expectation, because uh, 
what we have now is so much better than what we had. But uh, uh, so now being a senior surgeon and having all this duration and having a couple thousand facelifts, I, I can answer the question as talk about my mother yeah. and how many years it was between her first and second and <laughs> now third. Um, but I can speak to it in the first person instead of the second or third. You follow, you follow me? I can say, in my experience, I've found that the majority of my revisions or secondaries are around 10 years out, uh, 8 to 12, but the average around 10 years. I've looked at this. I can show you the last, you know, a decade ago and to show you what's happening. So that's how I handled that part um, in the first person. Now, you can't do that yet. So, but I think you can say easily that all patients are different. We age at different rates and aging is multi-level. It's not just the skin, right? It's right. the soft tissues, it's the skin and it's the underpinning, but even below that, and it's even the bone and fatty atrophy and so forth, right? And so we wanna be accurate and honest and give reasonable expectations for people. But I think we do need to point out that there's no perfect answer that you're going to do your best, that they will look better and younger. You can't make a warranty or guarantee. I oftentimes would say in the early days, well, I think safely we can say at least five years, which is a gross underestimate, but I would do that sometimes. But now what we can say that we couldn't say 10 years ago is, well, the good news is if there are some parts in which you age a little quicker, or maybe you have a little descent or a little contour irregularity, we have many non-surgical or minimally invasive alternatives. And without endorsing one of the many that we have, and we have all of them, both transcutaneous and subcutaneous, and you know, and the listeners know what I'm talking about, but with energy-based heating of tissues with radio frequency, as well as ultrasound and other microneedling and RF and so forth, we have the ability to, in our offices, tweak our facelifts. So yeah. let's say come, someone comes in in two or three years and she's really micromanaging a little loose skin here. Well, you can slip in your sub-Q device or you can go on your trans -con, transcutaneous device, whatever your favorite device or devices is. There's a lot of money being poured into this industry and there'll even be better options in the next three to five years. Uh, so that's the answer. We're going to get things where they are. And I always liken it to taking a suit to a tailor and you have your suits too big you've lost weight and you give your suit to the tailor and let's say the tailor the best tailor in the whole world in the universe tailors that suit perfectly to you it's the best job in the history of mankind and the tailor puts it on you but doesn't iron it doesn't get the coffee stains out of it doesn't clean the ketchup and mustard stains, but gives it to you proudly. It's the best tailored suit in the history of the universe. And you put it on and it fits like a glove. It's the perfect facelift, right? The perfect suit. But what do you see? You see the paint job. You see the skin. You see the wrinkles. You see the, and so forth. And therein lies the icing on the cake. And I think every one of us should present a concept of beauty that includes the soft tissues and the skin and the underpinning and the structure, the anatomy. But let's face it, you're looking at my skin. I'm looking at your skin, right? Yeah. And so if we have all these blotches or, and or wrinkles or lines, why not address them during that recovery period? Or to your point, in year two, three, eight, 
10, because most of these re early revisions, in fact, can be handled with various energy-based technologies and or fillers and or neuromodulators and all the various toys we have that we uniquely have along with our surgical skills. So, you know, the people that can only do that non-surgical minimum invasive stuff, they can't, they can't get the dents out of the car. They could just do the paint job. Right. We, can, we can trim the, 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 the suit. We can get the dents out and we can do the paint job. We can launder the suit and we can iron the wrinkles. And that's what makes our approach so much more dynamic. And I think from the consumer's point of view, it's a much bigger value proposition for them. Yeah, that's excellent. I, that's a great pearl, by the way. I love that. That's a, you know, what, I, what I've learned is I tell them I'm not a salesman, I'm a surgeon and that I can't guarantee longevity. I'll do everything I can that day in surgery to get you the longevity based on the skill set that I have. But as you mentioned, we have an entire arsenal of fine tuning that we can do over time if we need to treat those areas. And that's really a great pearl uh, for all of us. Well, I have to say this interview has been awesome, inspiring. It's been great to visit with you and learn about your approach. You know, as you mentioned, 38 years worth of face of surgery. And I think that it's 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 so amazing to have educators like you out there that are willing to share these pearls with us and continue to publish good work. So congratulations to you and your co-authors on an excellent article. And thank you again for joining us on this ASJ Open Forum podcast. Well, thank you, Chris, for the opportunity. And thank you all for, uh, for listening and watching. Look forward to seeing you all very soon. Absolutely. Take care, everyone. Go the Aesthetic Society and ASJ. <laughs>